This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. Federal appellate judge Neil Gorsuch is President Trump's pick to replace the late Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. So what do his opinions indicate about his approach to the job? Cato's Ilya Shapiro comments. If Democrats are really concerned about Trump uh, as president engaging in a wide variety of executive overreach, one might think that you want someone on the Supreme Court who seems less deferential to that kind of thing. And this guy seems like he has a record that speaks to that. Well, that is the $64 billion question. What happens when Trump realizes that all these wonderful judges that he's been advised uh, to appoint and select from by uh, the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation and others, and and I approve of his list uh, as well, for that matter, what happens when he realizes that those are the same types of judges that disagree with him on the scope of eminent domain and the takings clause or executive power or the Second Amendment or libel laws and all of these things that he controversially campaigned on? Uh, We'll just have have to see. Uh, as far as the Democrats are concerned, well, look, uh, this is just so much kabuki theater. We had those protest placards with the fill in the blank uh, uh, stop, uh, you know, hashtag stop, and then you could fill in whoever the, the nominee would end up being. Uh, so uh, I don't know whether the Democrats are really just going through the motions that this is a dry run for the next vacancy when the, uh, the balance of the court could actually shift. So um, Scalia had once described himself as, uh, or said he should be, a pinup for the defense bar. Um, What do we know about Neil Gorsuch with respect to uh, criminal defense? Judge Gorsuch is very much like Scalia on many things, and uh, certainly criminal procedure is is one of those. Uh, it's kind of surprising that you know most people would think that uh, a conservative of Scalia's generation would be a law and order type who's concerned about criminals getting off on technicalities. Well, there was no better friend of those constitutional technicalities than Justice Scalia. Whether you talk about the Fourth Amendment uh, uh, right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure or the Sixth. Sixth Amendment right to confront your accuser and other things. Uh, and Judge Gorsuch is very much in that vein. He reads criminal statutes narrowly. Uh, if the government hasn't met its burden, uh, then they're out of luck. If the statute is w- worded vaguely or broadly, he's not going to accept that. Uh, and he's written that even when he didn't have to, in, in separate concurrences or dissents from denial of en banc review, these kind of technical little opinions that don't draw that much attention. Uh, but a judge feels so passionately about this that he wants to plant a marker or, or a signal. Uh, And so, uh, on this issue, like many others, on the sorts of uh, cases where it would be Scalia and Thomas joining the left, joining, say, Ginsburg and Sotomayor against the middle, I think uh, Gorsuch would be very much of that type, as opposed to, say, an Alito, who's also an originalist of sorts and a conservative, uh, but more deferential to law enforcement. So Chevron deference is something that Neil Gorsuch has been very uh, critical of in opinions, but oh, and of course that that figured prominently in Obamacare uh, cases. What does that mean going forward, or right, what so, might that mean if he's confirmed? So Chevron deference is named after a 1984 case. 
um, and, and Justice Scalia actually did a lot to grow this doctrine, uh, talks about how judges should defer to the considered wisdom of executive agencies unless those agencies' interpretations of uh, the statutes that they're, that they're applying uh, is arbitrary and capricious, which basically means unless you're completely crazy, uh, you get to do whatever you want with these uh, statutes. And the incentive then is for Congress to write vague statutes and blame the agencies when something happens that people don't like. Uh, this is something different and, and unique from a, a conservative or Republican nominee. Uh, typically, uh, you would think that you, you, know, you don't want to empower judges to uh, read in their own views, that you just want to be restrained and, and defer, whether to agencies or the political process. And Gorsuch, again, has gone out of his way, even in one uh, case uh, just this past August, writing a separate concurring opinion to his own majority opinion, uh, talking about uh, this point that agencies are given too much deference. He, as a lower court judge, was certainly constrained. But on the Supreme Court, uh, if he brings this approach, it arrives just at a time when both uh, in the legal academy uh, and on Capitol Hill, frankly, there is some questioning about how much deference uh, courts should give to agencies in various circumstances. I've seen uh, several references to, of course, uh, Antonin Scalia, uh, who Neil Gorsuch would be replacing if he is confirmed, uh, to Scalia's writing style, very, uh, I would say, aggressive, but a, a very wonderful style of writing. Why does it matter that uh, people have such a high opinion of a jurist's ability to write like people want to read? Especially when you're on the Supreme Court, you're not just writing for the parties in front of you in the case you're uh, deciding. You're not even just writing for uh, lower court judges who are supposed to follow those rules uh, or lawyers in terms of planning the litigation. Uh, Supreme Court opinions, uh, they're establishing the law of the land. Uh, and should be understa understandable by the populace, at least uh, in cases where the principles are uh, more straightforward. You know, we can get some obscure, arcane analyses of the bankruptcy code, perhaps. But when you're talking about constitutional law, say, uh, these principles should be understandable. And so, the opinions that are more readable uh, are more effective. Uh, look at, for example. Uh, John Roberts's briefs when he was one of the star litigators before he became a judge. Those briefs, on average, have clear language with shorter sentences, uh, the uh, penny words rather than the dime words, as it were, uh, than the average appellate practitioner. And the same thing for a judge. If you write clearly, uh, you're more effective, uh, whether people agree with you or not on a particular outcome. And so, uh, even more than Scalia, um, uh, certainly there's parallels there, but Justice K is also known for her writing and is very clear uh, without the kind of uh, acerbic bent that occasionally haunted Scalia's writing. Uh, uh, and Gorsuch is, is of that vein. Uh, so uh, he will be uh, colorful and quotable, uh, but probably uh, almost certainly not as off putting as Scalia was at times. The Supreme Court uh, deals with a lot of hot button issues, much as they might like to avoid them. What do we know about what Neil Gorsuch has said on issues like abortion or guns or what rights are due to citizens? Surprisingly little. Uh, not because he shied away from it, but judges don't 
pick their cases, at least lower court judges don't. Uh, and the Tenth Circuit hasn't had a lot of those hot-button controversies, with the exception of the Little Sisters of the Poor case, the uh, Obamacare contraceptive mandate uh, against uh, religious nonprofits. And there, Gorsuch dissented from uh, uh, denial of en banc review of the whole court reviewing an opinion that went against the nuns that led to the Supreme Court uh, reviewing that case, vacating all lower court opinions and sending it back down for the government to work out an accommodation. He's a big uh, supporter of religious liberty and the freedom of speech on the First Amendment. We can tell he's uh, he's strong. Uh, on some of these other things, uh, there was a very technical case before his court about uh, the Utah governor's decision to defund Planned Parenthood, and he dissented in a ruling there on very technical procedural grounds, not on the scope of the abortion right or whether it properly exists or anything like that. So there's really not that much there for activists or anyone to glom onto uh, in that regard, which is why, to the extent uh, there are going to be uh, attacks or pushbacks during this confirmation process, it's going to focus on the process, on this was a stolen seat, allegedly, that should be uh, given to Merrick Garland. And uh, that the Republicans were obstructionist, that sort of thing, rather than Gorsuch personally. That's the argument that David Leonhardt made in the New York Times just either late last night or uh, early this morning. On religious liberty, what can we say with, co- with total confidence? I saw this uh, case that he had written about Andrew Yellow Bear trying to gain access to, uh, who's a prisoner, and trying to gain access to the prison sweat lodge and wrote eloquently and seemed to take very, very seriously the claims of, of both sides. Right. Under, under the law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, if the government can uh, uh, perform its duties, uh, uh, enact its law, enforce its laws without uh, uh, substantially burdening uh, the religious exercise of someone, uh, it has to do that. And, uh, and here, there already was a sweat lodge in the relevant prison. He wasn't asking uh, even the prison to build him a new sweat lodge. He was just asking for access to it. Uh, and uh, yes, it was a very powerful statement. Again, very clearly uh, written uh, and comes down hard on the prisoner making the claim. He had, after all, been convicted of murdering his own daughter. And Gorsuch was not saying that he deserves some sort of mercy, religious or otherwise, because of that, but just saying that even when you're a prisoner, you don't give up all of your rights, and religious ones uh, are certainly among those. What do you think is the most credible claim from uh, members of the Senate about Gorsuch's record that should give them pause about confirming him or voting for him? Well, there's there's one clear thing that I think uh, where I disagree with Judge Gorsuch. That's on the dormant commerce clause. To uh, indulge you with my uh, legal nerdery for a second, uh, this is the argument that the uh, constitutional power for Congress to regulate interstate commerce so controversial under Obamacare and everything. What are they doing regulating plants that we grow in our backyard or healthcare decisions, etc.? Well, anyway, is there a flip side to that? That is, when states pass laws that interfere with interstate commerce. Uh, that don't conflict with any law that Congress has passed, but still, nevertheless, impede trade among the states. Uh, do judges uh, have to strike that down? That is, is there sort of an implicit 
uh, uh, commerce clause that occupies the field that prevents states that preempts them in legal terms from passing this these sorts of uh, laws that have extra state uh, effect. Uh, and uh, I and and I'd say most libertarian legal scholars uh, tend to have a uh, a fairly robust view uh, of the of the uh, dormant commerce clause. While Gorsuch agrees with Scalia and Thomas for that matter uh, that it's not written into the Constitution, and so this is an example where these state laws might be stupid but constitutional. A sort of related uh, issue is where exactly he stands on the judicial restraint versus engagement battle that's been brewing uh, between and among conservative and libertarian legal scholars. Um, there's a, a, an op-ed that he wrote for National Review, the only one that, that he had for that publication uh, a dozen years ago before he was a judge uh, in the context of civil litigation. He was a partner at a big law firm saying how uh, liberal legal activists had uh, uh, used uh, the Constitution or the legal process improperly, and judges should be more restrained in recognizing new types of claims. Uh, I'm not overly concerned. There are some other judges on the list that I think had more uh, concerning statements ab about restraint or deference to the government or to uh, popular majorities. Uh, we'll, we'll just have to see. I, I think there's um, you know, there's kind of been a, a real transformation in the last decade about how even Federalist Society members uh, talk about this issue. And so I, I don't put Gorsuch in the same type of uh, uber-restrained camp uh, that even a Scalia was. How does his nomination itself, we can just argue about Donald Trump as president, but how does his nomination speak to Antonin Scalia's influence on the Supreme Court, how it makes arguments, and how uh, it addresses issues. Well, we're all originalists now. Um, even if you look at uh, Sonia Sotomayor's confirmation hearing, she at least had to pay lip service to the idea that the Constitution means what it uh, what it originally meant. Uh, and you look at the text; you don't try to uh, imbue uh, your own values, uh, uh, things like this. Or the Heller case, the Second Amendment case in 2008, where both Scalia for the majority and Justice Stevens in dissent were talking about uh, the meaning of the right to keep and bear arms. What does the militia clause mean uh, in the 18th? Century, uh, and that's you know, Gorsuch is very much a product of that. He's very much a product uh, of the Federalist Society. I, I would say not simply because uh, Executive uh, uh, Vice President uh, Leonard Leo was uh, Leonard Leo was one of uh, Trump's uh, key advisors on this, but because uh, Gorsuch, when he was in law school, was a member of the Federalist Society as a student. Uh, we're getting into that age now. The the society's been around for thirty years uh, and is starting to bear fruit, whereas someone like John Roberts was not for example. Uh, so the transformation of how we talk about the law, uh, theories of constitutional and statutory interpretation, um, Scalia certainly wasn't the only one. He didn't necessarily invent originalism and textualism, uh, but uh, he was their most powerful and highest profile expositor. So uh, it's doubly fitting then that someone like Gorsuch would be uh, uh, filling Scalia's robe. The Senate has also changed. We, uh, Antonin Scalia, I believe, was confirmed with more than 90 votes in unanimously, the, uh, 98 to nothing. All right, in the U.S. Senate, but uh, Neil Gorsuch, for all of his qualifications, um, should expect there to be far fewer votes. As you said, some of that speaks to uh, the process here, but should we have expected that, even if this process had been? Uh, followed to Democrats' satisfaction? 
something changed fundamentally uh, since that unanimous Scalia vote, or uh, Justice Ginsburg, I believe, was confirmed 97 to 3 or something like that. Part of that uh, is uh, the poisoning of the well uh, in the Robert Bork confirmation process the year after Scalia in 87. Uh, part of it is just uh, the polarization of the country and the parties uh, uh, and the increasing ideological coherence of the parties, that the Republicans are conservative and the Democrats are liberal and, and never the twain shall meet. Now, politically speaking, that might be in a bit of a flux with our populist moment on both the left and the right, uh, but still, in the current Senate, um, the, the demands of the base uh, are such that uh, you're never going to get uh, someone, a senator from California, say, uh, to pick the state that uh, was the most pro-Hillary in this election uh, to vote for Gorsuch, regardless of, of qualifications. They'll glom onto uh, something. Uh, but uh, then again, uh, he's less controversial than certain other people that could have been uh, selected. And he himself, uh, just a decade ago, was confirmed unanimously by the Senate. Uh, and I don't think that senators like Obama, Clinton, Biden, Schumer, Reid, uh, are right-wing extremists. Uh, so painting Gorsuch as such now, or saying that he's somehow transformed into that in the last decade, uh, would be hard. So there's a lot of, um, you know, these these aren't really going to be votes, uh, as you alluded to, uh, on the merits of Gorsuch, nor necessarily about the process. If 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 Garland hadn't happened that way, uh, there still would be a significant uh, opposition for for that matter. Uh, uh, John Roberts got a lot of votes against him, 20-something. Uh, Justice Alito, there was an attempted filibuster led by John Kerry. He called for one uh, while he was in Davos, I believe. He said, je voudrais un filibuster, I think was the technical language he used. But anyhow, um, yeah, we're, we're in a different world than we have been. And uh, the one-way ratchet, the increasing tensions over nominations, uh, I don't see that uh, changing anytime soon. Ilya Shapiro is editor of the Cato Institute's annual Supreme Court Review. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.